0: Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy.
1: My name is Daniel Koba. I'm the editor-in-chief of AJHP and the vice president of publishing at ASHP, and I will be your host today for the ASHP Practice Journeys podcast. In recognition of pride, ASHP will host four podcasts with LGBTQ leaders in pharmacy this month. With me today is Lindsey Kelly, Director of Ambulatory Care Services at Michigan Medicine. Lindsay Kelly, welcome. Let's get started talking about your journey. So first of all, I have to tell you, I'm looking at one of your um, your your photos in Zoom right now, and I'm a little bit jealous because I think you're much better than me at tying bow ties. So I went to a wedding last year and had to um, practice literally for a week using YouTube. I would come home every night and practice before the wedding. How long did it take you to master it?
0: Uh, probably about the same amount of time and with the same incentive. So I had, uh, my wife had purchased a bow tie for me for a wedding, and I had no idea how to tie it. And about 15 minutes before we were supposed to leave for the wedding, I was frantically in the bathroom watching a YouTube video, learning how to tie a bow tie. Um, and so I started tying them and wearing them ever since. So interestingly, I used to wear the clip-on bow ties for a long time, and I didn't tie them. And then uh, one one morning I had a meeting with Toby Clark. Uh, he was doing a residency visit, and I went to meet with him and I happened to be wearing a bow tie that I had tied that morning. And he said, did you tie that bow tie? And I said, yes. He said, always tie your own bow tie, different level of confidence. And I have been tying my bow ties ever since I got rid of all the clip-ons and I only tie them now.
1: That is a great message. That is an amazing message. Uh, um, And I can hear Toby Clark uh, saying it. Uh, That's, that's fantastic. Well, First, I hope that you and your wife are doing well um, in, the, in the midst of COVID-19. Um, Michigan has been hit hard, I know, and it's um, actually been the center of a lot of media attention, but I hope you're both doing well.
0: We are. Thank you. We've, uh, we've both been working from home for the last several weeks to months. Um, her work is with the university, and so she's been working from home exclusively, whereas I've had to go in now and then.
1: So tell me a little bit. Um, you know, let's let's start off in the personal. I, you know, i mentioned to you when I invited you to do this podcast that I really want to focus on your your letter uh, from uh, the book "Letters from Women in Pharmacy." But let's first start off talking about your wife. Tell tell me about her. You uh, her name. You know uh, how you met. How long you've been together. What she does. Just it would just be great to hear about this side of you.
0: Sure. Uh, So my wife's name is Andrea. Uh, She works at the university. She's a a do-gooder, mostly. So um, she is a social worker by background and training, but an administrator because of her love for policy. So she works uh, primarily in the community focused on health equity and just equity. Well, not health equity, equity in general. Um, So she used to work in bureaucracy, and she was really responsible for eradicating homelessness and bringing equity to communities. she spent a lot of time working for the county as the director of office of community and economic development. Um, and then she just came over to the university of Michigan and she now, um, is the executive director of a policy lab focused on, it's kind of like evidence-based medicine for, uh, equity policy. So they look at the impact of policy decisions. Um, specifically they previously focused exclusively on youth, but now they focus on other kinds of policy. So they look at changes like if we change the way that we administer curriculum or the way that we um, think about punishment in schools, what what are the long-term impacts on youth and incarceration and, you know, how do we draw those conclusions? So um, she really connects like the evidence that is coming out in real time from these researchers to the policymakers in Lansing. Um, So it's it's kind of exciting work.
1: Well, it's funny, you used at one point in talking about Andrea's work, you talked about uh, focus. And that's actually the word I was going to select to say that um, her work must really have been brought into focus recently, given everything that's happening in society. It just seems that um, uh, it just puts an increased emphasis or amplifies the work that she's doing.
0: Yeah, she she actually had this really cool opportunity. So um, in that COVID impacted a lot of academic work, right? So master's PhD students, they had to pause on a lot of the research that they were doing or had planned to do. Um, she was able to uh, connect. There was also a voice that she heard from the community saying that they needed help understanding the policies coming out around COVID. Um, and so she actually stood up this COVID consultation core. Uh, she connected these master's students and PhD students who were policy experts in, like, the Ford School of Public Policy and in the Institute for Social Research, with community members who. Uh, largely nonprofits who, who had organizations they were trying to run, but not the time to figure out policy and connected them so that these masters and PhD students could provide insight and um, expertise to these community, not-for-profit leaders. And so it was a really cool thing. Um, she's really impressive. She stood it up in like a few weeks. Uh, and so it was just, it was just really cool to watch.
1: That's amazing work. And you know, it's interesting as you started in your letter in Letters from Women in Pharmacy. You talked about the fact that when you were first invited to write your letter, that you spent time talking to Andrea and to thinking about what you would write and why you would be invited. But wow, I have I've had the chance to look at your letter a number of times uh, uh, from the early stages of development of the book, and I just recently reread it, and it's incredibly powerful. So as I said before, I'd like to spend a fair amount of time talking about the experiences and insights you described in your letter. But let's, again, take a few more minutes. We, we started talking about um, Andrea and your, your marriage, but we, let's talk a little bit about Lindsay. We haven't done that yet. So uh, you know, tell us about you, where you grew up. Um, start, start there.
0: Sure. Um, so I, I often say that I'm mostly from Arizona. Uh, I wasn't born there, but I grew up there. Um, I was there for about 22 years before I left. Um, so I did all of my elementary school education and all of my uh, actually most of my higher education in Arizona as well. And I lived a little bit of everywhere. So I grew up mostly in the in the Valley of the Sun in Phoenix, um, a little bit in Mesa, and then I did my undergrad in Flagstaff, my graduate school in Tucson at uh, the University of Arizona, where I received my PharmD. Um, and then I moved to the Midwest. So Uh, it was when I left Arizona, I knew I wanted to go somewhere different. I just, I figured if I stayed in Arizona, I would learn from all the people I'd learned from and I wanted to be taught by other people. And so I was just looking to go somewhere else. And so I ended up in Minneapolis, but my life in Arizona was pretty, I guess for, for me, what feels like pretty normal. I grew up, my mom was a single mom. She had been married when I was young. My sister and I were uh the children of a single parent for a long time. And then around my junior high years, my mom remarried to who is now my stepfather and has been for years, um, who I call my, my papa, um, and has been happily married ever since. I have two additional siblings. Um, and so now there's four of us, and we are very adamant about being siblings. If people refer to us as half sisters or half brothers, we get really upset. It's a family, um, shared family experience, and so uh, we have a really tight family. And I think that's been true my whole life.
1: And I bet Andrea fits tightly into that family unit as well.
0: She does. She does. And um, you know, my mom has actually been uh, really great and just always ensuring people were welcome. That's been a trait she's had since we were kids. Um, and she, it was no different when Andrea came home. And so she immediately brought her in and just made her part of the family. And I think Andrea really appreciated that.
1: That's wonderful. And, you know, one of the things that we're going to talk about later is your advice for the young people coming into pharmacy. But I think that even aside from advice, it's very heartening for them to hear stories like that. Mine was sort of similar where my family embraced Nicolas, uh, uh, from the very beginning, and I think that's really heartening to hear that. Now, I think I met you um, while you, on the Pittsburgh leg of your journey, so to speak, uh, right? That's when I think that's when we met, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it, it, so my first job was in Pittsburgh after my residency. So I did residency in Minneapolis, and then I, my first job was in Pittsburgh um, as an operations manager. And I think we had met through ASHP or some other form there. But yeah, that's when I remember meeting you.
1: So you were the upper, you also were responsible for, it was ambulatory in Pittsburgh as well. You really started uh, an ambulatory focus uh, basically right out of residency, correct?
0: So in Pittsburgh, I was inpatient operations, but I had always been ambulatory in my origins. So my internships during pharmacy school were in community pharmacy um and when I was in residency um the work I did was largely in BMT for my staffing and so I saw a lot of the transitions patients experienced coming in and out of that care and so uh even though I did inpatient operations in Pittsburgh my heart has always been in ambulatory care so when the opportunity came up in Michigan I I jumped at it
1: well and that's where I wanted to go next so so that that how did that opportunity arise how long have you been in Michigan now
0: Um, I've been in Michigan the longest I've been anywhere almost. So I've been here almost 10 years. It'll be 10 years in next July. So, um, And I refer to a lot of my life with serendipity and grace, but um, it really was that I ended up in Michigan. I I happened to be looking for something else. And through a series of fortunate events, I got connected to uh, a leader that everyone knows and loves, um, Sarah White. And I was talking to her about, you know, my next steps. And she said, well, do you mind if I reach out to a few people? And I thought, no, Sarah White, I don't mind if you reach out to a few people because who tells Sarah no? Um, <laughs> and and so she reached out to uh, a couple of people, of which one of them was Jim Stevenson. He was the chief pharmacy officer here at Michigan. And I remember... Talking to him, and I remember making the decision that this is where I wanted to be based on that conversation because of a key conversation we had. I was dating someone at the time they were in a master's program, and you know i I do this I started doing the thing that I had done historically, which is to use pronouns when I talked about them, so I was meeting with Jim, and I said, "You know I'm, I have a significant other they're in a master's program, and um, he said, okay, well I said tell me more about it and I said, well so." I felt like what was a risk for me. I said, "Well, she's in this master's program. It's this special type of program." And, you know, I always kind of monitor people's faces when I introduce this concept that it's probably not who you're thinking of. Um, and so he just, there was no change in his face. He just was like, "I, you know, so interested in what I was telling him about her master's program." And further, his response was, "Well, I'm certain we can get her connected with the master's program here." And the fluidity with which he responded in what felt like a very normal hetero way was just enough to make me want to come to Michigan and work with him I had you know I'd shared that story with others other people who I had talked to about jobs in the past and you know they always would like kind of adjust and adapt and um, there was a pause and with Jim there was no pause he immediately was just like all right well how do we get her here how do we get you here
1: so you know, that's really interesting because in your letter you said you made a comment that uh, the courage required uh, to be—I and I'm this is me paraphrasing a little bit—but I think the courage required to 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 be you, um, the real you, the authentic you, evolved with each new city and new job. I, I, it's it's interesting. I've. Um, with everyone that I've spoken to as part of this podcast, um, I, that's been a common theme, and I think it was my own um, experience as well. But so, can you talk a bit more about that? I mean, it, it's it sounds like that's part of that initial conversation with with Jim Stevenson uh, that it was that it probably relates to that evolving courage as well.
0: I think it really does. I mean, part of it for me was that. It, it may have honestly been my own fear of what was going to happen, not necessarily a terrible experience, but I was always afraid of how I would be received or how my sexuality would be received, and, um, and so I often guarded it. And then over time, I think I just had these empowering experiences with people who were lovely human beings, who really embraced, uh, you know, who I was, all of who I was, and And so as I moved through life, I just, I was able to build on those positive experiences and just be a little bit bolder. I think part of it too is that, you know, this is one of the things I enjoy about new experiences and moving to new cities is that you get this opportunity to kind of reinvent a better version of yourself, right? (laughs) So like, um, you get to kind of really capitalize on the parts that you were starting to develop, I think, when you left. And so I think part of that um, evolution was that I, in each city, I started to develop a deepening comfort um, with who I was and sharing who I was. And so as I went on to the new city, I would, I would try it out or try it on. And um, I think that, you know, increasingly as it was met with positive reception and and again, this embrace, I, I really started to use, you know, to use what is now a really common phrase. I really started to lean into it. Right. Um, And so I think it just, it was just, it felt good to be able to do that and to grow and continue to do that as I went on.
1: And yet you describe, um, in your letter that the hardest thing you had, the hardest decision you had to make in your career was to live as an openly lesbian woman. So where were you in your career when you actually started that process?
0: You know, it's funny. I was, uh, actually I was talking through some of these questions with my wife and I was like, oh, I remember the exact moment that I decided to do that. Um, I was in Minnesota, it was during my residency, and I was working in the Central Pharmacy, which was you know, one of my staffing assignments during the two years I was at the University of Minnesota. And um, someone was asking about my weekend. And I started to do the thing that I normally do, which was to use pronouns and just be vague. And you know, I would always share, and I think I talk about this in the letter, but I would always share what I had done, and I would talk about my weekend. Um, but I, I was always really conscientious of, the pronouns I used and how I described it. And I never really used anyone's name. I never really used female pronouns. And, you know, it's not like it was a surprise to people when they found out I was a lesbian, but for some reason that was a big hurdle for me. And I started to do that. And um, I looked over and, and there was just something about the people I was with. I had this kind of split moment decision of like, I'm just going to trust them. And so I started to just talk about, oh, like I went out with you know, this person I'm dating and, you know, we went out and did this and she does this. And I just started to talk about it. Like I would, if I were with my friends and to be more open and less cautious and, um, you know, nothing terrible happened. It turns out it was fine. Uh, and, and it was like that little bit of freedom just was really, I think the encouragement I needed, you know, everyone was great. Well, you know, tell us more about it. And it was just that, it was my own fear that I was able to overcome, but I and so I started doing that more. I just started talking about it like I normally would and not hesitating. And um, I've continued to do that ever since, as much as I can. There's still moments where I'm afraid, and I, like I said, with you know, when I met Jim Stevenson, I, I sometimes falter, um, but then I try and reengage with just being an, the most honest version of myself.
1: It's really funny because uh, again, in terms of common themes, that's been something that that I've heard throughout every one of these podcasts, very common theme, my own um, experience. And I, I will say as comfortable as I think I feel um, and as uh, expressive as I try to be, um, I, st- I get that in terms of you still have those moments where for whatever reason, it's um, anxiety uh, provoking, you know. You you talked in the book about um, the influence of Brene Brown's work on you, and you, that she talked about showing up and letting ourselves be seen. And I imagine that that comes into play with this conversation that we're having about just using the the pronoun that reflects the authentic you, but. How has that showing up and letting yourself be seen? Can you talk more about how that's affected you?
0: Yeah, so um, there's a lot of things that Brene Brown has taught me uh, that have affected me and impacted my life. But um, at the time that I was writing that letter and, and reading her book, um, it, which I think at the time was Daring Greatly, this this concept of being vulnerable was something that was really it resonated with me and I was really mulling it over, um, specifically related primarily to my emotional self. And, and, you know, I think that ties to how we are in the world and who we are in the world, but I spent a lot of my time, um, and I was actually, I I think, trained by a lot of people to be somewhat disconnected. And, um, you know, what Brene Brown inspired me to do was to reconnect with emotions, with, um, my understanding of my own, my ability to share them and to see them in other people. Um, for the longest time, this is, uh, if you ask my wife when you meet her, she'll talk about this, but I used to carry this like emotional cheat sheet in my back pocket. It was a—it was basically a grid of emotions at a high level. It had like happy, sad, mad, right? And it just went through different words of emotion and and so that I could begin to develop a vocabulary Um, because I just hadn't been connected to my emotions for so much of my life. And so it was this really like freeing time to just discover what it was to feel and to connect with others in a more deep way. Um, And at the, you know, um, kind of coinciding with that, I was being approached by a lot of students and residents around, you know, what I had been sharing about my journey being a lesbian, what it was like, and they were asking a lot of questions. And so I think being inspired to be more connected with others, and to share my own experiences in a more authentic way allowed me to connect better with other humans. And so again, I had this great positive feedback loop of these students and residents who I was able to connect with, um, overcoming my own fear of being emotional and connected. And they were just so uh, grateful and um, you know, embraced how I felt in a way that just continued to inspire me to have these experiences through their positive feedback.
1: You know, it's funny in reading your letter, it's interesting to hear you talk about this because um, you, you, you talk about this a lot in your letter and you talk about some of this relating to some of the management training and um, I would say behavior modeling that maybe you saw in your early career. But you also talk about the fact that even as a young person, um, you learn that uh, connecting with people could be risky. And I'm wondering, did that, you know, how much of that related to the fact that you were beginning to uh, recognize that you were a lesbian?
0: You know, consciously, probably I would tell you none of it, but subconsciously, you know, um, I think quite a bit of it. Uh, you know, the idea for me still, it's a, the idea of rejection is a big one that I think I, I, I still process. Uh, The idea as a young person of kind of figuring out that you're a little different and wondering how that's going to go, you know, again, I'm really grateful that I've had a fairly positive experience related to my, um, you know, what would be, I guess, my coming out story. There were moments of difficulty within my family, but I was never in a position of harm. I was never in any kind of danger for who I was. Um, My mom and I had a long journey. Uh, figuring out how to reconcile. I come from a really um, religious family. And so there was a lot of discussion around what that meant for me and what that meant for us as I, you know, discovered who I was. But I think for me, like, it was just this concept of knowing that I, I could be rejected for something that I couldn't control. And so that I think was really scary for me. And so rather than take that risk of being rejected, I just was like, it would be easier if we just don't talk about it
1: yeah i I mean I get it completely i think um you know on uh you know it's you try to figure out what comes first the chicken or the egg you know I think of myself sometimes as an you know an introvert have the ability to be a bit of a loner, and you wonder how much of that and how much of that does relates to you know uh behaviors that you developed as a child because you in my case, I knew I was gay and um so i again I can really relate to that. When you think of the pharmacy community, do you um, think pharmacy is open to LGBTQ people?
0: That's a really good question. Um, I, I think if you had asked me, you know, several years ago, I would have said, no, absolutely not. Uh, I think my position has changed over time. Um, you know, it's interesting. So, so today is, is Juneteenth and we're celebrating uh, diversity in other ways. And I was thinking about this because of the positive response and experiences that I've uh, engaged in in my own department and in my own pharmacy community around these recognition opportunities um, and celebration opportunities of others. And I've had good experiences specifically more recently with pharmacy as a profession where I feel far more optimistic and encouraged about our profession and where we are. Um, if you've ever had a conversation with me, I joke a lot that pharmacy is kind of square. Um, (laughs) we're, we're, we're conflict diverse in general as a profession. Um, it, it suits us probably in terms of the role we play in medication safety. Uh, but you know, for the longest time I was like, Oh, you know, pharmacy square, it's going to be a really long journey. And then in the past, you know, I would say a couple of years to several years, I have been really proven wrong, which isn't to say we don't have our own journey to continue. Right. But, um, you know, again, the feedback that I get from my peers and from those I engage with in our pharmacy community is so positive. And uh, again, you know, it, it encourages this idea of vulnerability, the more I share about myself and my journey, the more people come to me and say, thank you for sharing yourself. Thank you for telling me about your journey. You know, I have a similar journey, or I think my daughter is engaging on this journey, or, you know, your journey helps me understand. And so I think that's been really powerful. And so I'm encouraged about our profession.
1: Well, maybe the, what we're seeing in the profession also reflects what we're seeing societally um, here in the United States, and I think um, in many parts of the world. But, but you made a comment about um, the journey. And I, so I guess I wonder, are there things, though, that we can still do to make it better, especially for the, the next generation that's coming into, into pharmacy? Is there, is there more that we can do?
0: My personality in, compels me to say there's always more that we can do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm a person who's generally dissatisfied with the status quo. Um, so, so yes, but here are the things that I think about, right? Um, and, and so if we think about the concept of embracing differences, and in this you know month of pride, embracing the differences of our LGBTQ community members and ourselves, then I think it, it comes to the same thing we always look at, right? So what is the system that builds that embrace? How do we ensure that that embrace happens each time, not because of a person or a unique interaction, but because the system is designed to achieve that outcome? And so I think about simple things like uh, are our policies inclusive? Have we considered the way that our language or the way that our statements might Um, include or exclude certain individuals, have we, if we have a general way that we always do this around LGBTQ populations, have we put that in policy so that it's not a question that that no one has to wonder? Um, Simple things that are uh, in policy like partner benefits. That was one of the things I also found really encouraging when I came to Michigan is that I didn't have to wonder about partner benefits. It was really clear during my HR orientation. Here is how we look at significant others here's how we look at your partner, you know, should you desire to have one, which I later in years did, Um, you know, these kinds of policy things that I think we often take for granted, maternity and paternity leave, how do we build the language around that? So it clearly demonstrates that it is not about what kind of partner you have, or what the gender of your partner is. Um, So I think we have some opportunities in the policies and the systems. And then the other thing I think about in terms of things that we can control as leaders are representation in our leadership and representation in our committees. So, um, you know, when you think about the nursing magnet, it requires that a nurse sits on committees so that nurses are present. And so I think about like, what if we did that with things we felt passionate should be priorities? What if we said, we're gonna make sure that we have a good diverse leadership team. We're gonna make sure we're hiring for diversity. Um, We're gonna make sure that we're promoting with diversity in mind. Um, these kinds of things that are just system changes you can make. And that would be true of any group, to be fair. Um, But I think about it in terms of our LGBTQ community.
1: Well, and so I imagine that you were quite heartened earlier this week with um, a landmark decision out of the U.S. Supreme Court banning discrimination against LGBTQ people in the workplace.
0: I was, I was elated. Um, So First, I, I didn't realize it had happened during the workday because I was in the middle of my workday. And so my wife came out, uh, again, we're both working from home, and she was clearly ecstatic about something. And I was like, what did I miss? <laughs> and she's <laughs> like, you know, this policy change is major policy change. And so I, I, it's interesting because I personally was excited, but then there were two things that happened that made me even more excited. One was um, we have like a family social media line, Um, in my family. And of course, Andrea and I are engaged in that. And so she sent the article to the family line. It was really awesome to see my family's response. First of all, many of them were like, seriously, that's a thing. Um, You know, the first, the fact that many don't even realize that these kinds of discrimination still exist. Um, So just their, you know, confusion, which was genuine, and then their excitement that it had been, you know, overturned and that the protections were in place. Um, or that it was in, interpreted that those protections were in place. And then the second thing was, um, we have some really dear friends who we often refer to as our faux parents. They're, uh, it's a woman I used to work with and her husband. They're now retired. Um, but they live here in town. And they had immediately reached out to say, oh, this is great news. Congratulations. We'd like to celebrate with you. Can you come over? We want to make you dinner. And it was wow. just this, like, amazing moment. It was just really cool.
1: Oh, and it's so it's so wonderful to be able to celebrate moments like that with with other people. You know, Lindsay, you you've mentioned I at least twice during this conversation today, and you talk about this in your letter as well, though, that uh, young people have reached out to you to seek your guidance to mentor them. Uh, what advice do you have for? young people entering pharmacy, young people who are LGBTQ and are, um, uh, beginning to their career as pharmacists or pharmacy technicians, what do you say to them?
0: That's a good question. I think there are a few things that I think about. Um, and honestly, a lot of it depends on where the person is on their journey. Um, I think oftentimes when new practitioners or new leaders are coming to me it's because they have questions about their next step and so in the context of a student seeking residency or a resident seeking their first job often they're asking about um, how do I decide where to go and so in that context they they often also wonder is it safe for me to go to XY or Z organization and so um, I think there's two bits of advice that I give around that question and I think our Good, good things to consider for anyone, which is one, um, it, it's important that people feel empowered and comfortable being themselves. So I often will encourage new leaders or new practitioners to go wherever they feel most comfortable. And it's hard sometimes to identify what the culture of an organization or the culture of a community is. And so I I encourage them to, to ask lots of questions and to You know, use the same skills that we would use the way we teach them to evaluate evidence and literature to evaluate organizations. So go and read their about page, read their HR pages, look at the language. What does the language tell you about the organization? Um, And really get a sense for the personality of that organization. And so I think that's some advice that I give to people often. The second part is um, much easier to say and much harder to do, which is as much as you can, just be your authentic self. When you interview, when you talk to people, you know, a lot of times, particularly with with residents and students, they're so worried about getting the residency or getting the job um, that they don't, they're often looking at it from a what if they don't like me perspective, which I think is fair. Um, but, you know, this concept of like, are they good enough for you, right? Like be yourself, see how they respond. If you don't like it, then don't go there, right? Like you want to go somewhere where, You can be um, supported and embraced and, you know, particularly around residency, it's only a year of your life, but it's a year of your life. And so I think going somewhere where you feel celebrated is really crucial. The the flip side of that, which is not part of your question, which is then that compels us as organizations to create environments where we are embracing and celebrating so that we get the best candidates. We get the people who feel like they want to be here. Um, And so that turns into like kind of like my own job so that I can manage my own integrity. I have to continue to create spaces where that is celebrated, right? So um, it's kind of a dual dual duty.
1: Well, you and uh, I took on some really important work in co-authoring what I think is a really important uh, article that talks about some of these um, issues for LGBTQ people who are Uh, beginning to pursue residencies and I would hope that they um take advantage of that but also take full advantage of seeking out people like you for for this type of guidance it's funny you said that um uh that advice on being your authentic self is the one that's uh easier to say and harder to do but you know in this conversation today with you Lindsay I um I I can't um, imagine a conversation with somebody who could possibly be more authentic. It's just been really just um, amazing to learn more about you and your journey and just your thought processes. Um, uh, I admire you even more now than um, I did uh, 30 minutes ago and that, 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 that was already a pretty high bar. That's all the time we have today. I want to thank Lindsay Kelly for joining us today to discuss her journey. Join us here at ASHP Official and the Practice Journey podcast as we learn about how LGBTQ pharmacy leaders seek out, grow, and evolve during their careers. Lindsay Kelly, thank you so much for spending time with me this morning.
0: It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official